Welcome to No Filter, I'm your host Anna Kasparian and I hope you're all following our show on both Twitter and Facebook at No Filter TYT. Give us a follow so you can keep track of our updates and watch our clips. On today's show, I'm gonna show you outrageous video of Nancy Pelosi and her devastatingly dismissive reaction to rape allegations against Donald Trump. Later in the program, special guest Bhaskar Sankara, founder of Jacobin Magazine, will join us for a discussion on democratic socialism and the presidential primaries. As always, I want to encourage you to show us here at No Filter a little love by leaving a five star rating wherever you listen to this podcast. We'd be nowhere without our listeners, so thank you for taking the time to support us. All right. Let's get to the show. The United States government is specifically designed to incorporate a system of checks and balances between the executive branch, Congress, and Supreme Court. Currently, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi is turning her back on that very notion by refusing to open an impeachment inquiry to hold Donald Trump accountable for various acts that Republicans certainly would not tolerate had a Democrat been elected into office. While the right wing would jump at the chance to open investigations and attempt to impeach a sitting Democratic president, Pelosi displays a stubborn unwillingness to do the same. This has frustrated many on the left, including myself. What really put me over the top though was Pelosi's dismissive attitude toward rape allegations against the president. At this point, dozens of women have accused Trump of sexual assault, with many of the allegations making news even before the 2016 election. Think about that for one second. Not one, not two, but at least 19 women have accused Trump of sexual misconduct, and we've witnessed the exact same outcome following each and every one of these revelations. Regardless of how serious the allegations are, the press forgets within a week, and Congress does nothing. The latest woman to accuse Trump of misconduct is a longtime writer and advice columnist, E. Jean Carroll, who shared details of how Trump allegedly raped her two decades ago in a department store dressing room. It was against my will, 100%, and I ran away, out. And he mm -hmm. pinned you, I mean, just uh, without getting overly graphic, he pinned you against the wall. He, yeah, he held his sh shoulder he put, against you. He put his yeah. shoulder against you. And he is, you're right, He's. you made that point. He's much bigger than you are. I mean, I, not just tall, I mean, in terms of yeah, he the, was, yeah. The, yeah. his massiveness. Um, and so he pinned you against the wall, he ripped off your tights and- Not all the way off, just down. Down, he pulled down his pants. He No, just unzipped. He unzipped his pants, and this is beyond sexual. I mean, legally, he raped you. I don't use the word. I have difficulty with the word. I because I you think see it as a fight. I yes. just I don't you know. I understand, but you you see it as a fight, and you don't want to be seen as a victim. And I totally get that. Don't want to be seen as a victim because I over quickly over went past it. It was a very very brief episode of my life. Very brief. While it's inevitable for average Americans to debate whether they believe Carol's accusations, it's not our job to investigate or adjudicate these insanely serious matters. The government's core role, its one unquestionable duty, is to keep the country and its citizens safe. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi is failing to do just that. Recently, the House Speaker was asked what she planned to do in response to the allegations. And her reaction to Carol takes things over the top. We're so 
immersed in what's happening in our, Iran, what's happening at our border. Uh, so many policy issues uh, that we have responsibility for, including what, uh, keeping our elections safe today, as well as protecting the children to the best of our ability. I haven't spent any time on that, and I, I just am not, I, I don't know the people you're referencing. I don't know the person making the accusation. Uh, the, um, I, I just am not, I, don't, I haven't paid that much attention to it. She hasn't spent any time looking into rape allegations made against our president. She hasn't paid any attention to it. How serious does misconduct have to be for Pelosi to remember that Congress is supposed to check the executive branch? Will she ever challenge the president in a meaningful way? Apparently, Pelosi doesn't even know what Congress should do when the president is accused of sexual assault and rape by dozens of women. I don't know what Congress's role would be in this. But in any of these things, this is about not what Congress would do. This is about what the president's own party would do. You really have to ask them. But I'm busy worrying about children not not being in their mother's arms because the policies that we may have. This is amazing. Pelosi claims she's concerned about the children who have been separated from their parents at the border. Does she mean the ones who are held hostage by the Trump administration? The minors who are living in their own feces? The ones who are neglected, sexually abused, physically ill, and psychologically damaged thanks to Trump's cruelty and despicable inaction in Congress? What has Pelosi and the majority of Democrats in Congress done to help those kids? I know Pelosi tried to throw money at the issue, but that isn't nearly enough. Democrats like Pelosi love to bring up how terrible Trump is, and they're right about how bad he is. Yet, they do nothing to mitigate it. While talking about how dangerous or criminal he is helps her with fundraising or getting Democratic members of Congress reelected. It certainly doesn't seem to stop Trump from doing what he's doing. Through Pelosi's actions or lack thereof, Trump is learning that he is essentially above the law. What's even more frustrating is that Pelosi thinks Republicans need to deal with it. Does she really think the same Republicans who confirmed Brett Kavanaugh into the Supreme Court are going to investigate rape allegations against Trump? Would they ever hold him accountable for anything? Which brings me to the obvious question that gets asked when the topic of impeachment comes up. Yes, I know Republicans control the Senate. Yes, I know they're unlikely to convict Trump and oust him out of office if Pelosi opens an impeachment inquiry. But if Pelosi is so concerned about the political ramifications of opening an impeachment inquiry, I would argue that it's time for people on the left to make her worry about the political ramifications of not doing so. I mean, look, we're talking about a president who made illegal hush money payments to adult film stars prior to the election. We're talking about a president who obstructed justice, used his charitable foundation to enrich himself and pay off legal settlements, and possibly sexually assaulted and raped several women. When you have that much to work with, how can anyone tasked with being a leader cower the way Nancy Pelosi has? A leader leads. A leader doesn't wait for something to become politically popular before they act. A leader recognizes and does the right thing and persuades those who disagree to work with her. We need democratic leadership in Congress that forces right wing lawmakers to bend to their will. Pelosi just doesn't have it in her. We'll be right back.
What's up, everyone? Welcome back to No Filter. Joining us now is Bhaskar Sankara, founder of Jacobin Magazine and also an author who just published a book, The Socialist Manifesto. Bhaskar, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So there's so much that I want to talk to you about. You're a regular guest on The Michael Brooks Show, and I think you guys have such great conversations that aren't being had in the mainstream media about the economy and what democratic socialism really means. I want to focus on socialism for the purpose of this conversation and then later pivot to what you're noticing in the democratic primaries. But before we get started, I really want the audience to kind of get familiar with you in case they haven't heard of you before. In your perfect American government, in your perfect world, what does democratic socialism mean if you apply it to our society? Well, I think at the very least, it means that life shouldn't be the result of accidents of birth. You know, we live in a society where we take for granted the fact that a kid born in Fairfield County is going to have a absurdly different life outcome and life expectancy than a kid born, you know, 30, 40 miles away in Hartford or Waterbury or something like that. So, at the very least, I think democratic socialism means that your access to health care, housing, education, child care, nutrition. All these basic things are decommodified, which is just a way of saying it's taken out of the market and it's enjoyed as a social right. And I think that's that's the bedrock that we need. But beyond that, democratic socialists are Democrats, small d Democrats. So it means that we think that if democracy is a good thing in the ballot box, you know, every two years, every four years, then why don't we apply the logic of democracy to our workplaces? Why do we accept the fact that so many of our workplaces are being run as dictatorships without inputs from the workers, without unions, without whatever else? So it's about securing the basics that everybody needs to live a good life. But it's also about extending the logic of democracy from just the political realm into the social and economic realms as well. So there's a lot of debate with I'm, debate is a strong word. I think there's a lot of wordplay going on where you'll have members of the right use, you know, examples like Venezuela to fearmonger about socialism, and I want to kind of debunk some of that. But before we do so, I want to give you an example. And I will admit this is a pretty extreme example of what misinformation about socialism really does to the American electorate. Emma Vigland, one of our reporters, spoke to a Trump supporter in Florida just this past week. And here's what she believes socialism is. Do you think Joe Biden is a socialist? Yes. How would you define socialism? I define socialism when you bring down your own country, your own race, because he's not black. And what does that mean? Bringing him down to black people? Is that what you're saying? No. He's saying that the white people, he doesn't look at himself in the mirror. So I don't know what was going on with that answer. But that woman is a Cuban woman who I'm, I'm sure is very upset at what happened in Cuba. And so you would assume that someone who's concerned about socialism would know what socialism means. But what can we do to kind of mitigate the misinformation that's out there? And what can we do to actually educate the public so they're not so afraid of what some of the candidates like, actually one of the candidates, Bernie Sanders really wants to do policy wise? Well, I think we need to make clear that this is a policy that's in the interest of the vast majority. And if you work for a living, if you're working for a boss for a living, which 60 plus percent of Americans are, if you're worried about student debt, medical debt, if you're worried that you're only one accident away from just destitution, 
you know, this is the lives of most Americans. Most Americans that have no savings, that live lives of precarity, that are used to just keeping their head down and trying to survive every day. You know, we have policies that's in your that's in your best interest, and we have policies will only win about if you actually, you know, fight for things like Medicare for all. If you go out there and you canvass and you vote, you do all these other other things. So I think we need a we need a make socialism less an abstract kind of theoretical discussion and more, you know, do you believe that that the problems facing you are just personal failings or do you believe there are social things we can do about it? Because, you know, I've been without health insurance for months and years at a time. And that certainly felt at the time like there was something I could have been doing better to lift myself up. But of course, you know, we lived in the society where it's impossible for people to get health insurance unless they're lucky enough to get an employer-sponsored plan or they fall below the threshold they're able to get uh, Medicaid, which is still very difficult to get in most states. So I, I think it's just de-individualizing these problems. And we've been built as Americans to think that all these problems facing us are our balls. And thinking about these things as social problems with collective solutions. And more, most importantly, I think this is something Bernie Sanders does, and basically Bernie Sanders alone does in the Democratic field, is to say to people that it's not your fault, but it's also somebody else's fault. You know, it's millionaires and billionaires are at fault. It's not minorities, it's not immigrants. That woman clearly kind of saw it as a zero-sum game in this weird vision of the world where we're just different races competing over scarce resources. You know, this is the nonsense we need to push back against. Absolutely. So what's an effective way of doing that though? Because I mean, we are part of independent media and I feel like we're constantly trying to climb this giant mountain of outrage, misinformation, mainstream media rhetoric that is purposely meant to fearmonger about decommodifying these issues that should be human rights. I mean, and one thing that Richard Wolf said in a recent interview that I really resonated with me was that, you know, on the right, you have various groups of right wingers, whether it's evangelicals, members of the military, kind of getting together and uniting for a common cause and, and pushing forward. Whereas on the left, we tend to focus quite a bit on the small things that we disagree on and we tear each other apart rather than unifying to push for these issues that we really believe in. So what can we do on the left to unite so we can actually accomplish something like Medicare for all? Well, I think we do have a few, a really unifying galvanizing campaign right now in the Sanders run. We've seen what happens when we actually get labor unions involved and they're actually militant and fighting for their, their interests and their members' interests. So we've seen that in the teacher strike wave of the last year and a half. So we're seeing all these signs of what happens when, when ordinary people band together and use their collective power to, to fight back. Because we have a very different task than the right. Uh, and I think that people know in America that they're getting a raw deal. They know that, you know, exploited people know when they're exploited, oppressed people know when they're oppressed. What we need to break through is not with the message of, um, you know, you're in a bad situation because people know that. We need a breakthrough with the message that, in fact, politics can make a difference. So mm -hmm. a lot of people right now will, in a poll, say that they like the idea of Medicare for all. In a poll, they'll say that they like the idea of jobs guarantee. What we need to do is make it easier for people to plug in and engage in, in politics. And I think this what's really important is that obviously a lot of us are canvassing and supporting Sanders and this big galvanizing, uniting campaign. But at the same time, we need to be making deeper roots in our communities and in working class communities in particular, so that we are actually building a movement that will last longer than a campaign, whatever the, the outcome. And that's, that's a hard thing. And that's why we need outside organizations. We need to turn a group like Our Revolution into an actual grassroots kind of militant 
group if we're working class people are fighting for change in their own communities. We need to take groups like the DSA and this network of tenant unions and these networks of, of union locals, and we need to really unite them to, together. But it's a, it's a hard task. It's very easy to be on the right and be organizing people in the interests of their bosses and using mm-hmm. religion, using all these other divisive uh, things to organize people in politics that's fundamentally in the interests of their bosses. It's much harder to convince people to, to organize against the interests of their bosses. And it's not because they're not smart and they don't want to fight back. It's because the risk of losing is so severe. You know, many of us work 45, 50, 60 hours a week. It's very difficult for us to say, all right, well, after a long shift, I got kids to take care of at home. I have all this other stress. I'm just going to go out and go to a protest or go to some activism. You know, it's difficult. And we need to find ways to facilitate working class people actually getting engaged with politics and actually joining our movements because our movements can't survive if it's just like people of me and you, you know, if it's just kind of progressive minded, largely middle class people at the spearhead of it. There's just not enough of us. Well, I want to thank you for talking about the topic of worker co-ops in a way that's easily digestible and and you're repetitive and that's a good thing when it comes to that issue because full disclosure, when I first heard about worker co-ops, it was through Hassan Piker. I love him, but I immediately got turned off to it because I had all these questions in my head. What does worker co-op mean? I mean, don't you kind of need a little bit of a hierarchical system? Mm-hmm. Because there are people who are naturally leaders. There are people who who don't want to be put in that type of position. But you do a good job in kind of breaking down what a worker co-op looks like. So can you do that for our audience? Well, I think we need to say that as socialists, we believe in a society with as little hierarchy as possible. We believe that wherever there, there needs to be existing continued hierarchies, those hierarchies should be checked by democratic measures. So for example, a, let's say if you're, you have a 12 or 13 year old kid you know, and you're a parent, of course you're gonna be able to make sure that kid goes to school. Of course you'll be able to exert some sort of authority over that child. That's normal, it's checked within democratic bounds. You can't beat your kid or whatever else, but it's, it's kind of a form of hierarchy. In other words, that we as a society have looked at and have said, okay, this is a just form of hierarchy. So in a workplace, I could imagine maybe, especially in larger medium and larger size firms, we would need managers, right? We would need a clear lines of accountability. In a complex society with a complex division of labor, we would maybe need to assign ourselves different roles. But there's a difference between that role being assigned from on high by a handful of big CEOs or that role actually being subject to some sort of democratic oversight and mandate. So imagine you're working in a worker cooperative, but you and your your fellow co-workers, you set an operating agreement where you elect management to two or three year terms. You decide maybe the wage differential. So in a social society, I would imagine that some of the least desirable work in our current society, let's say, janitorial work or work in the sanitation department. In fact, we'd have to compensate this work more to make encourage people to actually do that type of work. Um, maybe, in fact, if you are a important executive in a worker-owned firm, you'll be paid more than if you're just a line worker. Maybe you'll be in a firm that decides that more of your decisions will be made through direct democracy and you'll have daily meetings. Maybe in other larger firms, you'll decide to only have meetings once a week or once a month. So I think all these things are are democratic, but what we're trying to avoid is a situation in which people own permanently 
not by virtue of their abilities, but just because of accidents of birth. And so much of wealth in the United States is in fact hereditary. So many of even, you start up a business with five, six friends and you, you get lucky, and then all of a sudden your children get to decide the fates of the thousands of people that are working in this company you started, you know, by no, no kind of virtue of their, your intelligence or aptitude or ability. What I think is that by looking at, and, and in the course of this book, I looked at a lot of real examples of, of worker cooperatives. And, and you know, for me, what I, what I saw was that at so many of these firms, workers at every single layer and level of production know how stuff is made. They know how to make and distribute and market their goods. And often we're divided in that I might have a certain skill set, you might have a certain skill set, but collectively, we, the working people, actually know how to make society function. So of course there's gonna be a division of labor, of course there's gonna be some level of hierarchy, but let's make it a lot flatter than it is now and let's make it a lot more transparent. Let's know, for example, how much each of us are making. Mm-hmm. I think it's important that people know how much, even their colleagues in a capitalist firm, it's important how much you know your colleagues are making because that's the only way you could actually bargain together and collectively. Because right now we're so isolated and atomized. Mm-hmm. It's almost like, like we're kind of pitting ourselves against each other instead of actually engaging in the kind of collective bargaining that can really lift up all boats. Yeah, I, I think that's such a great point. And um, I, we're out of time, but I have to ask you one more question and, and give you a plug because you were in a debate uh, for Reason TV. I watched the full debate with uh, Gene Epstein, a very cantankerous Gene Epstein, if I do say so. And you know, during the debate, he kept asking you this question regarding what he refers to as the tyranny of the majority. So let's say you have this ideal world where these decisions by the workers are made uh, through a vote, through a democratic vote, the majority vote on something and they decide on something that's actually problematic, maybe something that could be deemed discriminatory. How do you mitigate a situation like that in a worker co-op? Well, we mix democracy with rights. Mm -hmm. So in other words, I dispute, as a socialist, I dispute the right of a capitalist to own private property in terms of big companies and so on without subjecting that private property to some sort of democratic mandate. I dispute your right to employ people in a wage labor relationship at whatever wage they're, they're willing to, to work for. Um, but I don't dispute your right of freedom of speech, of freedom to be whoever you wanna be, of freedom to do all these other kind of basic civil rights. So I think we need a bedrock of rights to complement our, our democracy. Mm-hmm. And in fact, the socialist movement and more broadly, the progressive movement have been on the right side of fighting for not just further expansion of entitlements and and democratic measures, we've also been on the right side of fighting for civil rights. And today we're the people fighting for freedom of speech, we're the people fighting against government overreach and so on. So I think it's important to remember that we aren't just looking for the tyranny of the mob, we're looking for a place in which we could all as individuals really reach our maximum potential. And in order to do that, we need a combination of these negative freedoms and rights, but we also need rights to have quality healthcare and education and all these other things that in many other even rich countries, much less kind of a future utopian social society, but even just countries in the here and now, people just take for, for granted. But in the United States, I mean, the conditions of so many of our sisters and brothers live in are just absolutely abhorrent. And I think mm-hmm. that's gonna be our main dilemma for the next 10, 20 years. A lot of these broader questions of how do you go from capitalism to socialism, I think will be postponed until then. And perhaps a lot of your listeners won't be with me in that that kind of further further leap, 
But at the very least, we have a broad progressive mandate and a movement that's going to need to win a lot of things that is really just life and death for, mm -hmm. for ordinary people today. Yeah, Bhaskar Sankara, please check out his work on Jacobin Magazine and also The Socialist Manifesto, his latest book. Bhaskar, thank you so much for taking the time to speak to us today. Thanks for having me. We'll see you soon. All right, we're gonna take a quick break, we'll be right back. Welcome back to No Filter. Thank you so much for watching everyone and especially thank you to those who take the time to leave us a five star rating because that gets this show featured on various podcast platforms. I also wanna thank Sophie Sai, who is the leading producer on this show. I wouldn't be able to do this without her and I rarely get a chance to thank her. So thank you, Sophie, and thanks for watching. We will be back next week with another episode of No Filter.